0: Hello, kids. This is a message from your eager beaver. Just to let you know that we are working very hard on our next episode. We are putting out the interview first because it is ready, but life has thrown us a couple of curveballs. And this week, the episode will come out after the interview. But don't worry, it is indeed coming. In the meantime, be kind to and gentle with yourselves. And welcome back, kids. It's time for the interview portion of today's show. And Mr. Grizzly, if we are talking about improving political literacy, being actively engaged in our democracy, and elevating the level of debate, it would be hard for us to do better. Agreed. Let's see if our listeners can guess who he is. All right?
1: Sure. Let's go for it.
0: Okay. Clue one. This week's interview guest is a political theorist with an interest in democratic deliberation and citizenship who received his PhD from the Department of Political Science at the University of British Columbia clue two a self-described writer academic and public intellectual he started making headlines in 2014 following an appearance on the cbc radio show ideas from the trenches during which he argued that modern democracy has a fatal flaw we've overestimated our own intelligence
1: yes we have
0: oh yeah (laughs) see why we have them Mm -hmm. (laughs) clue three He is a contributing columnist for the Washington Post, the host of the podcast, Open to Debate, and the author of Too Dumb for Democracy, Why We Make Bad Political Decisions, and How We Can Make Better Ones. Clue four. He recently caused quite a stir when his opinion piece entitled, Doug Ford Must Resign, appeared in the Washington Post. Ladies and kids, gentle kids. This week's guest is the very impressive David Moscrop. Welcome, David.
2: Hello, I thought you were gonna say Frank Stallone. I, oh God. it was a perfect setup and i i just i just stayed quiet the whole time and had to restrain myself from jumping in and stealing norm Macdonald's bit from the 90s so we're off to a just a great start
0: oh frank stallone he took a wrong turn but man i love those two songs from staying alive
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> terrible movie Bless man, his heart. yeah if you want to like sweat it out it's like it's it was like the like maniac part too
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, 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 yeah. It, it's 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 a shame it was such a terrible film because it could have been a good sequel to what originally was a very good film, yes. Saturday Night Fever. But that's off topic.
2: The Rambo is the same case. You know, the, I went recent. I, I watched the Rambo movies a couple of years ago. I was living in British Columbia, and and you know, me and my partner at the time were going to go to Hope where they filmed it. Mm-hmm. So we watched Rambo in anticipation of that. And I hadn't seen it since I was a kid. And it, the first Rambo was genuinely quite a good movie. Yes. And then mm. the wheels fall off the series. Yes. <laughs> but the first one's genuinely quite good. And in fun fact, the second one, I think is the second one, was dedicated to the Mujahideen.
1: Yes. Yes, it was. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, how ironic that came back to a little, so, little blowback on that one. Huh? Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
0: I didn't. Think, I don't think I noticed that when I was eleven. Yeah.
1: Well, I just <laughs> I just rewatched First Blood again the other day because the uh, all three of the first Rambo films are on uh, on the Netflix right now. So yeah, I just rewatched First Blood a couple of nights ago, and you know what? It, it's very dated. Uh, I enjoyed it because it was it was the best film out of all of them, but mm-hmm. it's very dated and. The um, when you watch it the fight sequences look very staged. <laughs> there's no there's nothing authentic looking about them, unlike, you know, some more modern films.
2: No, they re- that's true. And I you know, I think I saw a tweet that uh, Ottawa mayor Jim Watson has been spending his time during the lockdown rewatching the Rambos. I'm almost yeah. certain that's I case. did see that tweet. <laughs> did you actually? see that? Yes, I did. So we're in we're in good company, I guess.
1: <laughs> Big Jim. <laughs>
2: Uh, um
0: david to get into it uh you've done something super interesting uh you've given a ted talk
2: yeah it was a a tedx in calgary a couple years ago which i am unable to watch
1: what what is that
2: (laughs) well i genuinely don't like watching Or listening to stuff that I've done and I I should because it's how you get better but I I can't usually and I saw a bit of it once and was mortified because I I realized that I was a combination of of exhausted not as prepared as I would have liked to be which is unusual for me and uh, suffering from just one of the worst bouts of allergies I've ever had and so I look like I'm high (laughs) on something. I was wondering about that. And I i was, I, 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 there's nothing I can do. It's just there. It'll always be there. And it happens to me occasionally. And so there's a few cases where if you look stuff up, I'm like that. And then most of them where I'm not. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, occasionally someone will say, like, were you on something? And I was always like, well, I should have been. <laughs> no, I was just tired and stressed and like just trying to get through the day from an awful bout of, of, allergies that just were that I couldn't possibly control. So I have have not seen that, and I don't think I'll ever watch it ever again.
1: I, have, <laughs> I can empathize. Well, with the, with well, the allergies.
0: Because <laughs> <laughs> I was researching, I did. Uh, yes. <laughs> so, yeah, I was, I was wondering. If yeah, would, I know. If well, and
2: everyone's allergies. too, you know, people. nice people are too polite to ask. And, and I wish people would because then I could say no. But <laughs> I'm just sort of stuck with it. And I, I don't know, I guess. You know, it's funny. I This is not by way of comparison. This is just by way of, of sort of. Uh, general interest. Uh, I, I watched the Hemingway documentary, the PBS Ken Burns doc, mm-hmm. recently. I picked it up on a platforming stream and, and decided to watch it through. And he was notoriously just terrified of public speaking. And if you look, you know, towards the end of his career, when he was giving a speech for the acceptance of, I think, the Pulitzer. Or, or some no, it was uh, an interview about his acceptance of the Pulitzer. He was reading off of cue cards, mm-hmm. and he was he would read the punctuation that was written <laughs> on the cue cards. <laughs> now he had also suffered several like concussions. Not to mm-hmm. not, like genuinely, he was he had had some serious traumatic brain injuries as well. But he was so nervous that you could just see him trying to get through the cue card. He couldn't. He would just sort of read the punctuation, wow. and I sort of felt like I get that. You know, when you're just <laughs> you know, trying to get through the moment, you end up doing some strange things. And what what bothers me the most is that most of the time I'm not like that. And to see that is just well, well.
0: Yeah, How was the I talk
2: think... though? Was the talk part good? At least? Yeah, actually, well, that's, it really was. That's exactly was where I was going with
0: that, right? And and it and it is absolutely true because I saw your interview uh, on CPAC uh, in, in 2019 and. You know, i mean if, if people saw that one first they would go like where is this guy why is he you know, on every network right mm-hmm. uh, you are so super weird. engaging but but yes the thing was the message despite all of that you know just, it really wasn't that bad um the message really really came through and you mentioned uh there was something you quoted uh dan levinson in saying that uh uh americans uh took in about five times as much information in 2011 as they did back in 1986 and we're in 2021 right now Mm -hmm. Uh, and earlier in our episode we were talking about uh more information coming in as you know it pertains for example to the the science for covid for example you know uh with masks as we learned more about masks the directives changed and some people uh, in the media uh, decided to portray that as confusing uh and flip-flopping rather than well we just know more mm-hmm.
1: well that's science um, right it's not static it's it's always in flux you learn more yeah. you adapt
0: yeah and we're having the same issue right now with uh nasi uh when they gave us more information for more nuance uh for example you know we have a. We have an array of vaccines now, and we have them in sufficient quantities now that if, for example, you are concerned about the clotting effect with AstraZeneca or the Johnson & Johnson, and you have the luxury of being at home and waiting safely, well, you can wait for Pfizer or Moderna. And again, this is being portrayed sometimes as being confusing or a flip-flop or a contradiction, and I don't think this is helpful, and I was wondering if you could speak to that in some way.
2: Well, I think it is confusing, although I don't think it's a flip-flop. I think it is, as as we just heard, it is an evolution. We're also seeing a, on on the transmissibility, our understanding of the transmissibility factors, you know, for instance, with COVID being airborne, right? There's a big debate, and, and finally, it looks like it's being resolved in, in favor of it being airborne, and the WHO is catching up, but there's a lot I just read along New York Times piece about that today, where they were saying, well, w- why were we so hesitant to accept that it was airborne? It wasn't just droplets. Yeah, it was sure. aerosol. And it was, well, a bunch of different things. Yeah. Uh, uncertainty, people who are sort of entrenched, uh, sort of resistance to admitting that we were doing COVID theater, yet we were doing the wrong, we were spraying down surfaces, you know, sandblasting our groceries, quarantining our mm-hmm. mail. Mm-hmm. Not that I'm thinking of any... Me in particular, <laughs> talk <laughs> about that stuff. But the, the fact is we were processing something new, something complicated, something deadly in real time. It affected almost every aspect of our lives. Mm-hmm. And we were doing the best we had with what we had. Mm-hmm. And it was going it was always going to change. And ditto the policy programming around it. Right? We kept hearing start, you know, the perfect shouldn't be the enemy of the good. Uh, speed trumps perfection, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, that was always going to be the case. And it's very, very hard for us to keep up with that. It's hard for us to adapt. It's hard to, for us to accept new realities, especially when we're scared or tired. Mm-hmm. And we were all both of those things, probably, mm-hmm. for the most part. And and public messaging wasn't always very good. And the, you know, the NACI messaging on the disastrous day, not so long ago when they were having a press conference and later had a an official out who said that you know, she couldn't live with herself. Uh, it, what was it? If her sister got ill or something like that, mm-hmm. had a blood clot or something mm-hmm. from it. Uh, I, I don't remember the exact line. I don't want to misquote, but you can look it up. It was on, I think, CTV. And people started saying, well, it, it's contradicting the federal message, which is the best vaccine is the first one you're offered. And, of course, the, the prime minister came up soon later and repeated that message if you're a citizen trying to navigate this space you've got two heuristics two decision-making shortcuts the naci the experts and the prime minister and now those are at war in your head what do you do right because uh, so much of our decision making is based on heuristics and when they conflict it creates some trouble for us
0: mm-hmm. now could you give this uh for our listeners who might not know it what a brief definition of heuristics may be
2: yes absolutely so Uh, In short, it's a mental shortcut. And what that basically is, is in a world in which you've got to make a bunch of complicated decisions all the time, we adopt rules or shortcuts or proxies to make those decisions. And those could include, you pick the simplest thing, you pick the first thing you hear, you listen to your family, you listen to your friends, you listen to your doctor, you listen to the prime minister, you listen to your political party. There's all kinds of different mental shortcuts that we take to make decisions. Some of them are good and serve us well, some of them are not so good and serve us poorly and there's lots in between. And so COVID has been a great example of that because basically we've had to navigate the last 14 months or so based on these, uh, these heuristics because the vast majority of us had no expertise in the, in the relevant fields. Mm.
0: But the thing is, uh, what I'm on, my perspective is what I'm wondering is, why do these two heuristics necessarily have to be in opposition when they can be completely me- weaved into a, a narrative that makes sense? All the vaccines that we have are definitely a sufficiently good quality. The first one you take is probably the best one for you. But if you do have the luxury of reading safely, oops, hold on, there it is.
1: There's, a, there's time for a commercial break <laughs> and we'll be back. Hey there, Mr. Grizzly. Hey, how you doing? I'm
0: doing really good. Hey, have you heard about the Miss V Mysteries yet? No, I don't believe I have. Oh, well then you really need to. The Miss V Mysteries is an LGBTQ plus cozy mystery series written by Delilah Knight. Miss V is 60, trans, and obsessed with all things 50s. From her kitten heels to her chic bob, Miss V is a lady through and through. When her late aunt's lawyer is found murdered and clutching V's favourite Chanel jacket, she is immediately arrested. Can she find the real killer before local law puts her away for good? Will she be forced to trade 50's rock and roll for Jailhouse Blues? Do prisons even have a happy hour?
1: I don't know about that.
0: Oh, I sure hope they do. Oh goodness, yes. Must be happy at least one hour a day in there. <laughs> <sighs> Miss V and the Lettuce Lawyer is the first book in a humorous, cozy mystery series from bi Ace author Delilah Knight. On sale now wherever ebooks are sold, paperback copies are also available. Or call your local library and ask them to get it in. Signed copies available at www.corvidmoonpublishing.com. That's www.corvidmoonpublishing.com. The Miss V Mysteries. Delilah Knight get it and we're back sorry about that but real life it does get in (laughs) the way we're doing this in my kitchen right so (laughs) um but uh so to get back where we were I, I was wondering if those two heuristics those two mental shortcuts needed to necessarily be in opposition why cannot they be weaved together so for example uh all the vaccines that we have, they're approved by Health Canada, they are they are good. The first one that uh, is offered to you is probably the one that you should take. However, because we have enough of them and enough supply now, if you have the luxury of waiting safely and because we know more about the vaccines, we know that there are some potential side effects with the vector type vaccines, you have the luxury of now responsibly waiting yeah, these don't need to be in opposition. And I'm like, it's, it's like this information is presented to us, pre framed as this is going to be confusing, or Canadians are confused, when it, I think there could be a way to package that information in a way that says, you know, we know more, here's news you can use now.
2: Yeah, you know, it's interesting, because that is essentially the premise of most of my research from my doctoral and, and book days, That was more or less the point I was trying to make was that we're pretty bad at making complicated decisions under certain circumstances. But if you put us in better circumstances, uh, we tend to be better. The question is, what circumstances are you making those decisions in? Do you have time? Do you have research? Do you have access to trusted uh, experts who can help guide you? are you under duress or, or, or are you scared and tired and uncertain and doom scrolling and so on and so forth? And the fact is that I suspect a significant number of people, I, 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 perhaps a majority, or at least I'd say a significant plurality are making decisions under suboptimal mm. circumstances In suboptimal circumstances, which means that they're going to see those things as conflicting when what the NACI was really saying was, uh, the mRNA vaccines are the gold standard, but all the vaccines are safe. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and you should talk to your healthcare provider to decide what's what's best for you and your certain, you know, under certain circumstances. But not everybody can do that as well. So yes. the the problem is we often assume that people are making decisions under conditions, uh, ideal conditions, when that's almost never true. And so if we can sort of set people up to succeed which is you know to have time and resources and so on then that's great but if we can't then we're into trouble and there's great research on sort of of decision fatigue there's great research on decision points Barry schwartz has a book called the paradox of choice which is which is quite good i recommend it and it opens with him trying to buy blue jeans uh sort of staring at the wall of blue jeans and he's he's old he's older at the time Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's a psychology professor, he's retired now, and he's like sort of staring at the wall, like, What the hell do I do with all these blue jeans? And boy, do I ever feel it! You know, you just have too much data and you can't yeah. make a decision. And there's similar research with cars, too. You know, if you, if you go out to buy a car and you're Tell presented with three or four data points, you know, fuel efficiency, safety, whatever, that uh, you make a better decision than if you have a dozen, right? Because too much information is bad for us. And so it's it's a real challenge to get the right amount of information in the right way to make good decisions. And sometimes that's, you know, over silly stuff, like what kind of cheese do you buy Mm -hmm. or what kind of soup or whatever. But sometimes it's a matter of life or death. You know, what kind of vaccine do you get given your medical history or your work profile, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? Mm -hmm. So it ends up being awfully, awfully challenging. But that said, I've been repeating the message that – you know, because I have a platform mm-hmm. that it probably is the case for, the, for you that the right vaccine is the first one you're offered. Double check with your healthcare provider, right?
0: Yes, okay. of
1: course.
0: Yeah. That's the uh, simplest way to package
1: it. I, I agree with, uh, with exactly what you're saying though. The, 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 overwhelming amount of choices to make, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, being that we're in a pandemic and so many people have been either out of work or working from home for the last year and a bit, uh, the anxiety and the mental health has has taken a bit of a kicking, and then let's let's throw multiple choices on vaccines. It's like, wait a minute, this is just just tell me which one to get, and I'll go and get it. Don't 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 let me make that decision because I it's just too much right now. I feel that's what a lot of people are experiencing. I mean, maybe I'm incorrect on that, but I think a great number of people are going through. That exact thing right now. Except of course guys like me who are Gen X, I'm, you know, fifty two, I'm like, I'll take the first thing available. <laughs> yes. I don't care. Right? Yeah. I played yeah, lawn exactly. darts as a kid, right?
2: <laughs> I seen lots of posts about people were like, you know, if you went to this bar, don't worry about what's in the yeah, vaccine. Yes. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. And I think about I sort of think about I think about the time that I had a drinking contest with a friend of mine and drank I'm not gonna say how many in a day, but lots. <laughs> And I was like, I shouldn't really worry. (laughs) But, but, you know, what's funny is is I believe all this and I intellectually know all this stuff that I say. And then last night, for the first time, I logged on to the Ontario website uh, because I saw something on vaccine hunters about uh, trials being open for 18 plus Mm -hmm. at certain pharmacies in Ottawa. And I put myself on wait lists for the first time uh, because I'm I am high risk, but in a way that's. Hasn't meant that I was on the line. So I've been waiting patiently. I work from home, And then I the first thing I thought was like, oh, which should these should I get? Right. <laughs> and I was like, oh, wait, hold on. <laughs> hold on a second. Uh, because that sort of emotional, uh, you know, tied concern, because I'm also someone who has, who has a considerable amount of anxiety, crept in. And I had to suppress it because I thought, no, no, Dave, you know better. Mm-hmm. Put yourself on the waiting list get the first one that's available to you. And that's what I'm going to do. But it's snuck into my head too. Mm -hmm. And, and I certainly don't blame people for that. Right. I mean, I, because ultimately we're human beings, we're emotional. Mm -hmm. We're driven by our emotions. Yes, we are. When it comes to vaccines, when it comes Mm -hmm. to politics, when it comes to love. Mm -hmm. And a lot of our work through the day is, is dealing with those emotions, sometimes suppressing them, sometimes working with them, sometimes sort of, you know, navigating them in complex ways and to think that we can sort of rationally override them every time without any conflict is to deny what it means to be human
1: indeed Mm,
0: well that's one of the things i liked about uh when you when you were talking because i'm in the same boat as you by the way right the you know uh waiting patiently at home you know you know have, have a have a condition where you know i'm a tiny bit ahead of the line of somewhere else but like not very much not not critical or anything and uh, yeah you know i've done sitting there at home you know, i got two arms juicing you know <laughs> i'm ready uh and, and i've been ready uh but you're right you know when, when you talk about the emotion you were talking specifically specifically you know we try to create this external objective machine that makes rational decisions when really what we should do is just embrace the emotion part of, you know, of the decision-making process and factor it in.
2: Yeah. If if you try to deny that emotion plays a role in your decision-making, you won't get better decision-making. You will get hidden emotions Mm -hmm. conditioning what you think, are purely rational, objective choices, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, in my work, I'm not arguing that we should not be emotional. In fact, quite the opposite. I'm I'm arguing that we should embrace and understand that we are going to be emotional when we make political decisions and decisions in all kinds of, of, of areas of our life. We should reckon with that and make it part of the sort of suite of tools or considerations that we draw on when we're deciding something and to think that you can just you know get away from that emotion the sort of being becoming the the enlightenment ideal of the dispassionate rational decision-making machine is just uh, it's just impossible it's it's an absolute fantasy the sort of reason over passion that was popularized by among others pierre trudeau just isn't who we are as much as we might want it to be us and so we need to reckon with that and, and the, the, you know, getting wise about decision making isn't overcoming your emotions. It's it's understanding them right, mm-hmm. and working them in to your decision making process, bringing them to the to the forefront and, and, and engaging with them rather than running from them.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And one of the things that you mentioned is this process uh, for us as citizens uh, who want to be engaged in democracy or and want to be politically uh, literate is that there are a group of people out there who are expert at understanding emotions and that are using that mm-hmm. understanding in order to create even more confusion, or to lead us to make dumber decisions.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, this has been true in in advertising for a very, very long time. You remember old advertisements? I mean, I don't remember them. In sense like that you can look them up, <laughs> I, wasn't, I wasn't around for them. But you know, back in the day, advertisements were copy of uh, long bits of copy about the product right mm-hmm. with an image and then there was a sort of advertising revolution when okay, you weren't selling the product anymore you were selling a feeling you were selling an emotion you were selling yeah. an image and it was that sort of resonance that the, that advertisers were trying to generate and you know this sort of you know, comes about in politics in a very significant way in the 1960s in the united states you, know, you talk about sort of the selling quote-unquote of the united states president in the Kennedy-Nixon years, and this becomes this sort of politics as advertising, politics as communications. And these days, it's true of advertising, it's true of politics, it's true of all kinds of things. There's all kinds of people out there who understand emotional resonance. They understand what it means to create an image, to try to manipulate emotions, and to win you over that way because that is who we are. And that's the path of least resistance. It's much, much easier to convert someone emotionally in many cases than it is to convert them uh, through logic and reason. Why would that be? Well, I mean, biophysically, probably because of the, the nature of our, of our brains, <laughs> of how we've just evolved. Uh, institutionally, probably because, again, it's just cheaper and easier to you know, make someone feel like they'll be sexier and more appealing if they do this, or they'll be in an in-group if they join mm. you. Then to try to persuade them that this policy is going to have an output of X or Y, which is better than an output of A or B, and and that's really powerful. And and a, you know the in-group, out-group distinction is a huge part of our politics. It's also true of advertising. Mm. You want to be part of something. You long to be belong. You you long to belong. You want to be happy. You want to be included. You want to be safe. You want to be loved and political parties or movements uh, will make will, will sort of do the work to make you a part of that and, and to beckon you in political parties are like that anti-vax movements are like that anti-lockdown movements are like that pro-vax mm-hmm. movements are like that too. When you see someone post a vaccine selfie and you like it and you share it and you do the same, you're part of a community. Right, mm-hmm. you're part mm-hmm, of the right. vaccine community. It's one I'm happy to be a part of and very keen to join soon. Yeah, uh, but it's another distinction of in-group out-group, and that defines a lot of our politics. Sometimes for the better, and sometimes mm. for the worse. But it becomes toxic when we do us versus them and turn that into rather than sort of an opponent, uh, a villain, you know, yes. or, you too- or or even an interlocutor into an opponent that must be defeated.
0: See, and that's you too- how you get
2: toxic partisanship. You're taking this
0: exactly <laughs> where, I, where I wanted to go uh, with this. It's that there are people, it's, how would I put it? It's that when there's an in-group, clearly there has to be an out-group. But you could have a situation where there's an in-group and there's just an out-group, or you can have a situation where there's an in-group and there's an out-group, and the people in the in-group are othering yeah. the out-group. And that's where the toxicity comes in.
2: Yes. And, and, you know, it's funny when I was, I was thinking about this recently because I went to university when I was, I guess, 19, because I was the last OEC year in Ontario. And I went last. What's that? Before last. I was, yeah, so the the year I graduated, I graduated, I was the double cohort year in Ontario. Okay. So the 12s and the 13s uh, graduated together. And I was, so I was a bit older. I was 19. I went away to Ottawa where I am now from Peterborough. And I was like a classical liberal. I was a small L liberal. I was also a large L liberal. I was a member of the liberal party. And hmm. I went to university sort of thinking that, look, everyone's equal. Everyone has the same rights. Everyone has just got to go out there and compete with one another to, to win. And those who win are the winners and those who lose are the losers. And that's how it is. I had no concept of of identity difference, of, of, of structures that oppress, of structural racism, of structural patriarchy, and so on and so forth. That was stuff I sort of developed in my late teens, early 20s, thank mm-hmm. God, pre-social media. Mm-hmm. I, I, it's, I can't imagine what it's like figuring that stuff out these days in public. I got to do it in classrooms and talking to professors and talking to colleagues and friends. Mm-hmm. And it was you know, through studying a bunch of people, Chandra Mohan to me, for instance, Uh, William Connolly was a big one and and Connolly talks about identity difference that we take these differences we harden them and we make these oppositional kind of frames and then we do battle over them and it turns into an other that needs to be you know resisted or fought or whatever it might be Mm -hmm. and it's stunning to me that you know that those identity markers have become so deeply entrenched that we often don't even think that they exist. (laughs) We don't see them. And we don't do the sort of intellectual work and emotional work to to sort of figure out how those hardened identities and and the systems that surround them benefit many at the the cost or benefit some few at the the cost of very many folks. And you've got to kind of go door to door (laughs) to to convince people of that. Because if you're just out on social media or on the stump, it's an awfully tough message to sell because people are struggling all over the place, right? Mm-hmm. Or people think that they've had a bad deal all over the place and to try to convince them that, no, no, these folks that you see as another are bound up in your oppression. James Baldwin used to talk about this too, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, more eloquently than, than most of us, including myself, ever could, uh, that you know, doing that work is really critical, but also very, very difficult, especially in this day and age where you can log on and find a community of grievance that will, will will very happily accept you as you are and do battle with others for you, right? Part of the reason YouTube, for instance, is so dangerous and such a vector for mm-hmm. white nationalists. And mm-hmm. that's awfully difficult and, and one of the major crises that we're confronting at the moment.
1: Agreed. Agreed. Yeah, I'm a blast at parties. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> but you, you, uh, you hit the nail on the head right there.
0: And this seems like a good time for a commercial. We'll be right
1: back after the break. Hello, kids. It's Mr. Grizzly, your friendly neighborhood grizzly bear, who is asking you how much you like this program. And I'm asking you if, well, you like this show, you like what you hear, and we're happy to do this for you, if you'd be willing to, you know, throw us a couple of bucks as a tip. And the reason we do this, the reason we ask this question is because there are some production costs involved. We're happy to give this to you, but, you know, feel free to send us a couple of dollars over uh, coffee.com. And now the website is ko dash. FI.com backslash eager beaver. Dollar, $2, 50 cents, whatever, whatever you can spare. It helps us with our production costs. Mr. Beaver.
0: That's right, Mr. Grizzly. The amount that we have recommended on the coffee site is $3, but it can indeed be anything that you want. Uh, buy Mr. Grizzly a cup of coffee or me a cup of hot chocolate because, after all, you are what you drink. We want you to know that we will be using these tips in part to invest in improving the quality of the show for you. We are looking to get better equipment, better sound, perhaps at a later date, correspondence, a web presence, maybe even filming for YouTube. The possibilities are endless. The show will grow with your support and encouragement and your support and encouragement is always profoundly appreciated. If you would like to leave us a tip, Again, the web address is coffee.com backslash eager beaver. That's K O hyphen F I dot com backslash eager beaver. Thank you again.
1: And we're back. Um, I, And I'm, you know, going, going back to the, the whole miscommunication around vaccines, so much of it is just complete uh, baffle gab spread mm-hmm. about on social media channels. Well, with you, with, you know that? spread by somebody read this or it's an anecdotal thing from my friend who knows guy who no none of that has any basis <laughs> or I mean, in reality or I mean, mean yeah
0: but the thing is now like, for example you know it's 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 like it's in our politics right it's
3: mm.
0: uh, there are p- political parties now where the label of the party, I think it was, um, I think I was listening to Pod Save America, and I think it was Dan Pfeiffer that was saying it, that conservatism is no longer an ideology, it's an identity. Mm-hmm. Right? I, and when, yeah. And, you know, if it's still an ideology, you can take it like it's a Rubik's Cube and put it in front of you and look at it from all sides and, you know, look at things and, you know, uh, like one of the, the concepts that you were talking, you know, ask yourself, you know, Where does this belief come from why do i believe this do i still need to believe this does holding this belief serve me in any way Uh, i've held this belief before like this i'm still holding it now do i still need it i mean you know these things matter and you know you can look at it that way but once it becomes identitarian um you are emotionally invested
2: Mm -hmm. well absolutely and i you know it's funny i've been through a number of transformations along those lines throughout my life I suspect I'll go through more one of the biggest ones was leaving the Catholic Church mm-hmm. which I didn't do until my sort of mid to late 20s mm. and it was finally because <clears throat> I just could no longer reconcile the sort of moral ethical social positions that I held in the positions of the church because even when I was younger I was you know pro-choice mm-hmm. and then very soon anti-racist and you know uh, feminist and so on and so forth and i found that the church wasn't but my identity was bound up with the catholic church to an extent and the sort of metaphysics that i was interested in uh was a huge part of of who i was and how i thought and this part incidentally why i was a catholic as long as i was it was the metaphysical stuff not so much the the ethical and moral stuff Mm -hmm. and finally of all things this is slightly embarrassing but it's true two things finally dislodged me And, and it was, uh, it was listening to a podcast. God, this is, I'm not super proud of this, but it was like, it was a Hitchens podcast on religion Mm -hmm. that kind of knocked me off kilter. And then finally I was sitting around one day and I came up with a kind of a thought experiment. At least I think it's mine. Maybe, maybe I picked it up somewhere, but I thought it was mine where I thought, if you were to give someone blank slate, a series of files with all the major faith traditions, and all the, uh, of the sub-faith traditions within them, and then put it down in front of them and say, okay, pick. <laughs> yeah. Here are the holy books. Here are the traditions. Which one you want to do? <laughs> I thought to myself, well, I just couldn't pick. I, yeah. I have no way to discern which cosmology, which metaphysics, which theology uh, that I believed in, and therefore I can't choose any of them. I was born into Catholicism. I went to Catholic school. I, mm-hmm. I read the Bible. I read Augustine. I read Kierkegaard. I read... Uh, Newman, I read all these folks, mm-hmm. but I might have read the Koran, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? i might have been somewhere else in the world, but I didn't, and I couldn't, and therefore uh, I finally uh, broke away from that. But the identitarian stuff still lingers, but but it, it had left me, and uh, you know, I, but it was it was very very difficult for me, and there are still days where I think, despite myself. You know, it would be nice to be comfortable in the bosom of a metaphysics or a cosmology that helped you order and navigate the world and made you feel safe and belong and and part of something. Mm. But I can't because I just don't believe it (laughs) as much as I might want to. But I don't, (laughs) right? But we do that with politics too. And and you know, the point you raise about the conservatism as as an identity rather than an ideology—it's fascinating because if you go back into the history of of american conservatism there was a in the 1950s the american political science association says we have a problem in america we don't have enough polarization <laughs> oh, god what? help the wow. yeah and and this was something that was being echoed by a lot of conservatives not the least of whom was william f buckley who said republicans and democrats same damn thing and he was right mm-hmm. it was true the, there was a post-war consensus in in. Mm-hmm. in The Republicans and Democrats were liberals, Mm -hmm. and Buckley at Al, the sort of new, the National Review folks, were saying we need to make a distinction between conservatives and liberals, and the Republicans will be the conservative party, and the liberals will be the Democrats. And they made that decision in around the Goldwater years, and then on to Nixon, and and then sort of the apotheosis in in the Reagan years, and then later you get people like Newt Gingrich, the sort of quote-unquote intellectual. Forefather mm-hmm. of all the nonsense we see now, <laughs> uh, who decide to make it a deeply identitarian thing, right? Mm-hmm. Like it, it becomes culture war stuff in the 80s and early 90s, but it, it emerged from a place where people, folks said, Oh, this isn't polarized enough.
0: Oops. Oh, boy. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's funny when you said that because as soon as you said that, I keep on thinking of liberal Tory, same old story.
3: Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Or remember, the, where did the, that come
0: from,
2: right? Or remember the early 2000s? From? Uh, Adbusters had a sort of uh, Republican Democrat same fucking thing. I think was the cover. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was like a donkey, and an elephant. It was like oh, I was the same. And, and of course, that was kind of like the last grasp of that because I don't yeah. think anyone's serious. I mean, they're the, you know they're they both believe in capitalism. Yeah. Although you you know you might be seeing them pull apart in the Biden years. You know, I think so. more than than we yeah. like, would have expected even more yeah. certainly more than I expected. And so who knows where that's going to go, but it, it does come from somewhere that, and it could have been otherwise.
0: I, I have a weird question for you, uh, because earlier you were talking about having too much choice. One thing, I, I know this is supposed to be show specifically about Canada, but since we're on the, on the saying, issue, um, no, 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 that's okay. Since we're on the issue. It's one thing that's always fascinated me about the United States is the concept of freedom being the choice of 100 different detergents or pairs of jeans. Yeah. But when it comes to your governance, two parties. Is it possible to have not enough as well? <laughs> oh, <laughs> Too sure much it like is.
2: Not enough? <laughs> sure, sure it is. And I mean, in the sense that, I mean, I'm I'm a fan of proportion. I'm a supporter of proportional representation for a bunch of reasons, and, and one of those reasons is that I think voters should have a high probability of of casting a ballot that returns someone they want to see in the legislature.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. And in Canada. You, you don't really have. You have a few options. I mean, it depends on your riding and your province and so on. Mm-hmm. In the United States, obviously, it's much much worse mm-hmm. at the congressional level, and and by the time you get to the presidency, I mean, you, you know, yeah. really, you've got two choices. Yeah. You register I'm... as a Democrat or Republican or an independent. I mean, it's all structured that way. So it, I would say it is possible to have to have too little choice. But of course, but what <laughs> there's they some got- ballots like. That. Would they not benefit story. from
0: a third party, someone that can slide up the middle, and every now and then say, you know, they're
2: both crazy? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, you think that, and although sometimes that is, I mean, that's how you get um, Stefan Dion, I guess. Not with all yeah. due respect to Stefan Dion, sometimes you, the sort of like in quote-unquote consensus choice in the middle ends up being a, ends up being a mess because it's the two polarized sides that hate one another so much that um, they if they think they can stick it to the other person by voting for a third person, they will (laughs) getting someone who serves nobody, but you know, it's the institutions of Canadian and American democracy don't really allow for a a ton of choice, but they even, they allow for even less citizen engagement and participation. So there's a double problem that, you know, once you've made your decision, you are kind of stuck with it. For, a, you know, a period of years and there's there's very little you can do in the in the meantime, absent collective mm-hmm. organizing and even then uh, to dislodge things. And we're seeing that in Ontario right now.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, I hit the mm-hmm. wall mm-hmm. In the last mm-hmm. couple of days in a way that I didn't even think I would or mm-hmm. I just like I at what point during in, in the between elections do you say that this can't stand? I don't care what the election did. An election yes. isn't a license to kill, as I said. At what point do you just say, well, we gotta do something because this cannot go on? Of course uh, we I, have very few mechanisms. We don't
1: I, have I, any mechanisms I, I, to pull the pull the eject button and get and get yeah. rid of the government. We which? because, because our system is, is broken. Hope, right? Yes.
2: Because our system is broken. I mean the, the thing parliamentary I'm a supporter of parliamentary democracy and long have been, mm-hmm. but Canada's parliamentary democracy, federally and provincially Uh, I think it's a little more complicated in the territories, but federally and provincially is fundamentally broken because the idea is that parliamentarians hold the government to account Mm -hmm. in between elections. Mm -hmm. And they, if they don't like it, they can dislodge the government. And that includes government side MLAs, MPs, MPs. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't happen.
0: No,
2: never. (laughs) Not here. Happens in Australia. Happens in the United Kingdom. Uh, It doesn't happen here.
0: But that's uh, that's why I'm 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 wondering why why is that the case? I mean, at some point, uh, I'm watching Kenny Go in, in Alberta, and I think there was like a poll that said seven percent of Albertans are satisfied. Uh, that's going to be the I don't know if that was I don't know if there was a moderately satisfied in there, but only seven of them are expressing, I guess, high degree satisfaction. Yeah, you know, people are not happy (laughs) (laughs) with doug ford um you know people weren't happy with doug ford before the pandemic he seemed to be going up you know with you know these the one thing he seemed to be doing right is that he seemed to be able to at least give the appearance that he was still on team Canada, even though he was on the conservative side where some other conservative premiers did not do that. But I mean, we're seeing like very quickly, once he starts to go glub glub, he starts pointing to the border and all of a sudden Christian Freeland is not very much his best friend anymore. I mean, with friends like that. Oh my God. So, (laughs) um, so he wasn't very popular before he got a little boost. You know, we are finding out, you know, with the AG report, with the commissioner report that, you know he's pretty much done nothing uh in between he was seen seemed to be sitting on money for a while people were wondering if the plan was to announce you know not as big a loss with the budget as normally and try to pat himself on the back um but he's going he's coming back to where he was before and lower and it just seems to me that you know even out of pure self-interest this one's a new government. I'm sure there's a lot of people that you know want to get that second term so they can qualify for their pension. Why are they? Why Why is this not throw Ford overboard?
1: Didn't Didn't Mike Harris eliminate pensions for MPPs?
2: Oh, I don't remember about that. Yes, I don't. I, you I know what? check about that. I don't, know, I don't that. know what the current status is that in Ontario. That's a, that's a very good question. I like, was reading <laughs>
1: something about that earlier today. Yeah,
2: um, I. You know, it's funny. Is, is that feels like that is the sort of thing that. I should know, but I don't recall because that sounds right to me, and yet I, I'll, de- I'll defer to the researchers. Mm-hmm. But they certainly want to win again. <laughs> and I know that, you know, I, I hear rumblings that the knives are coming up for Jason Kenny. Yeah. And uh, from, from for folks him, they're who want to see him go. And, for him, and, they're
0: coming out from the side of the people that thinks he's doing too much.
2: Yeah. A <laughs> thought, right? In, I know. He's in a particularly tough spot in alberta because the party dynamics are a little bit different alberta is a pretty stark two-party system as well and the ucp caucus is 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 uh, you know trying to manage both the sort of proper pandemic response to some extent i mean Mm -hmm. a minimal extent to some extent Uh, and then they've got the kind of like anti-lockdown folks Mm -hmm. and that's that is a tough tent to hold together it speaks to a, a bigger phenomenon in canada that i think people don't often appreciate which is they think the left is divided in canada Mm -hmm. when the fact is that the right is much Mm -hmm. harder to herd than the right than the left Mm -hmm. in canada Mm -hmm. and and so you get if you look at this sort of history of breakdowns caucus breakdowns party breakdowns in in federal politics since the 1980s it's all conservative (laughs) it is it's the conservatives falling apart uh, in the 80s with reform, with the rise of the block, uh, and then, of course, the, the decline of the PCs and the rise of the alliance and the Canadian Reform Alliance Party and all that nonsense uh, before they consolidate in the 2000s. Crap. And even still, they're having a hard time with that.
0: Yeah, it's funny you should mention that because in our first episode when we were giving the lay of the land, uh, you know, of the the seven parties that will be in the headlines, we grouped the three conservative parties together because my theory was is that we could see a 1993 situation again where the bottom could fall out. Mm-hmm.
2: Oh, yeah, they got to watch that. And, and you know, it's funny is it's given me an appreciation the more I learned about this, of Stephen Harper. And I say that.
0: That's the end of part one of our extended interview with David Mosscrop. We hope that you find the conversation interesting and stimulating. Please join us for part two tomorrow. The True North Eager Beaver podcast is an Eager Beaver Mr. Grizzly collaboration, copywritten by the Eager Beaver. Recording, production, and editing by Mr. Grizzly. Music courtesy of Ben Sound Royalty Free Music. Once again, thank you to our founding sponsors, the Peppermaster the Miss V Mysteries from Corvid Moon Publishing, and canadiantarot.com. And thank you to the very impressive David Mosscrop for agreeing to be our guest this week, and now forever friend of the pod. See you tomorrow! Come on a journey like no other, where you will discover many roads that will lead you to a happier, healthier, and more stress-free life.